Before we start the show today, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this week's episode. It's Okun Arts, an eclectic shop in Seattle, Washington, filled with vintage Japanese yukata cottons. The love child of artisan quilter Patricia Belia, Okun Arts is a magical place to visit when you're in Seattle, in the Seattle area, or you can check it out from your desktop at okanarts.com. That's O-K-A-N arts.com. Thanks so much, Oaken Arts. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 59 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about dyeing and patterning fabrics with my guest, Malka Dubrowski. Malka Dubrowski got her degree in studio art from the University of Texas in Austin. She trained to be a printmaker, but while home with children and without a press on hand, she began to work in fiber art. After several years exploring art quilts, Malka became interested in connecting with people more directly by creating functional items out of her own hand-dyed and patterned fabrics. Today, she designs and sews quilts and pillows and creates hand-dyed yardage, all of which she sells in her online shop, A Stitch in Dye. Malka is the author of two craft books. She's an instructor on Craftsy. She designs fabrics for Moda and will soon be opening a makerspace in Austin, Texas, where she lives. Malka Dubrowski, welcome. Hey, how are you? Great. I'm so glad to talk to you today. I'm really excited to hear more about you and your story. So um, if you met me at a party and I didn't know anything about you, didn't know anything about what you do for work, how would you describe what you do? Oh, you know, people ask me a lot of times, so what do you do? What do you do? You know, it's like the, it's the typical party question. I usually just, um, depending on the person, I usually just say I, I design fabric for a major fabric company or, you know, I try to kind of limit it a little bit because, you know, it's just kind of an icebreaker of sorts. But um, I would, I think of myself as a, an artist designer um, and, you know, I will tell them that I, I hand dye and pattern fabric. That's usually the first thing I, I tell people because it's probably the thing that speaks to me the most and then I design and sew quilts and and other items um oftentimes using those fabrics so okay that's if I was going to give you the longer version the longer version and do people immediately are like oh tie-dye like is that what they do they go there uh, not always. Some people, depending on their familiarity, say somebody's got some familiarity with batiks, um, they will then talk to me about that. Um, no, no, unless I go into, because I have done a fair amount of shibori, though, never any um, tie dyeing. Unless I go into that and say I've done shibori and, and explain how it relates to tie dyeing, usually they, they, I guess they, I think, I feel like they probably assume I dye kind of solids more than anything, especially if it's somebody who's already in the fiber world or fabric world. And so they imagine hand-dyed solids. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's always interesting to see like what it, visuals like it conjures up in people's minds, like where they go, you know, because if you say you, you sew, they immediately, most people immediately go to clothes. Like, oh, you, you make clothes, you know? So, um, it, it's, <laughs> there's a, it's, sewing is big. There's a lot to it. Um, and it's sometimes difficult to explain. So, um, so for a long time you were an art quilter and, mm -hmm. Uh, now I would describe your quilts as modern quilts. And right. so I know you sort of made that shift. And I think that that it's not totally unusual, um, but it's, it's somewhat of an unusual shift from art quilting to modern quilting. So I wondered if you could describe what you feel like the difference is between those two sort of genres of quilting. Um, I think probably in my mind, the number one thing is functionality. I think even if a modern quilt is going to go on a wall, you could also see it functioning on a bed. Maybe this version is small and so it can only fit on a wall or, you know, the bed's too small, too big for, for this particular scale. But it could definitely, it definitely has functionality. Um, and art quilts, um, though some of them could be functional, by and large, they're not, they, they don't feel functional. They feel like they're kind of um, playing with those materials. And that's, I guess, the other things. I, when I was in, in making art quilts, I remember that there were other quilt artists who were, you know, embedding things in their quilts and using, like, thick dye paints or dye, yeah, dye paints on, on the surface and, and um, 
you know, with beads and all sorts of stuff. Um, there's a, I forget, Jane Birch Cochran. I was going to say I forget her name, but I don't. Um, and she would like embroider just her pieces were more like assemblages on fabric than anything else. And, um, so, you know, it could never function on a bed. You couldn't wash it. You couldn't let the dog get on it. Um, and, um, I do feel that modern quilts, um, if, if I had to describe just one thing about them, it's that they have functionality. I do also think that they're very much, I mean, the, what separates them from traditional quilts is, is that aesthetic, that, uh, kind of simple, spare, almost, you know, um, Scandinavian aesthetic, though not necessarily always Scandinavian. Maybe that speaks more to the quilts, the modern quilts that appeal to me, um, and, um, but yeah, I, I do think it has to do with functionality. Okay. And, and so you made that shift because you were seeking that functionality. Like you, I mean, you had, you had had a lot of success as an art quilter, right? I mean, yeah. you, you'd shown in, in galleries and, um, and maybe won some awards and, um, could have kind of stuck with that route. So was there, there, was there some push inside of you that made you feel like, you know, I want to, I want to do something that people can actually use. I mean, was it, was there a feeling like, Hmm, this isn't quite the right fit for my, you know, my artistic, uh, I don't know, like, uh, drive, you know? Oh, definitely. I mean, I had had, there was one year where I was both in quilt national and visions in the same year, which is, you know, was huge. Um, and cause these are like, well, quilt national is the pinnacle of art quilt, uh, shows, but, uh, visions was, you know, right behind it. And, um, but I just felt like, you know, it. In all honesty, I know it seems like I. I, I guess to some degree, I wanted the kind of um, not justification. I wanted the 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 feeling that comes with selling your work, really selling your work, feeling that you know that it's it's sort of like a validation, which. I got it. You shouldn't want. It should be all about, you know, making the stuff. But I wanted to feel like people really wanted it in their homes, not just to come look at it at a gallery and say, isn't that great, you know? So um, I, I wanted that. I also wanted to feel like it connected with other people, like people were using it, you know? I had made quilts uh, for my own kids. By this point, I had I had two at least. I have three girls total, but I, I had two at least. And, uh, um, I had made them quilts for their beds when they were young and, um, or when they were infants. And I just really wanted to have that for other people. I, I didn't want it to be so far removed. I'd, one of the things that I loved about making art quilts, it was different from making say prints or, or paintings or drawings was that you could come up to an, a, a quilt was like something you could touch, you know? But more and more, I felt like the art quilts that that I was making and that I was being a, that the shows that I was a part of, you were like, we really weren't supposed to touch them. You were supposed to see them from a distance. They were art. They were art, and they were over here. And here you are, person over there. And I really wanted to bridge that gap. I wanted the person and the quilt to kind of live in the same space, to exist. Um, you know, yeah, to exist in the same space, whether in a home or on a table or whatever. And I wanted that stuff to be used. I wanted it to be used and yet yeah, like used up, you know, um, I didn't want it. I didn't want it to be something so precious. I like that idea of used up. Um, yeah. because I think that, you know, one of the things we struggle with is the, the definition of art and the definition of craft and sort of where that line falls. And one of the ways to think about craft is that it's used, and I think that's a pretty common way to think about it, but another way to think about it, sort of an extension of that, is that it can be used up. Um, it, and I like, I like that. I think that's a, that's a good uh, sort of addendum onto that definition. Yeah, it's it's you know it's really kind of a, a Buddhist mentality. You know those monks, the uh, Tibetan monks that make the mandalas, you right. know, out of sand, and then they blow it all away. You know that kind of non-attachment thing. I mean, I think it's a pretty good life lesson, let alone you know crafting lesson. Yeah, so. for years I made greeting cards, and one of the reasons I used to love to do that it was just this ephemeral piece of art that you would get. You would it, it served a purpose. You would write a message inside. People might hang on to it for, you know, a few weeks or something like that, and then they would throw it away. And I just, like, there was something about that that I really liked. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, not that you would throw away a quilt, but you know what I mean? Like, it, you use it, maybe it gets threadbare over, over many washings or gets stained or whatever, and it's, it becomes part of your life instead of um, just, just art, which, I mean, I love art as well. So they just serve different purposes. Um, right. 
Yeah. So, yeah. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the fabrics that you use to dye because um, yeah. I think that that um, from watching your craftsy class is kind of an important thing. So you use a certain kind of Pima cotton that is labeled PFD, pre- prepared for dyeing, um, called Pima Tech. So do you want to just mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that fabric and what makes it different from sort of, you know, if you bought Kona cotton, for example, or something like that? Yeah. And I would say that I love Kona cotton, but I would Me never use <laughs> with Kona cotton. Okay. Um, and so the thing about this Pima Tex, it is it has a really high thread count. And what I have found, and this is, you know, strictly, I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm no chemist here, so I haven't figured it out, you know, chemically speaking, but my experience has been that when I use this Pima cotton, because it's got a really high thread count, number one, it absorbs those colors. I mean, it's almost like sateen. It, it just drinks them up, you know. Um, and I do all my dyes. I don't do any um, direct dye painting, which means I don't, like, prepare my fabric ahead of time with the fix and then apply the dyes directly I always um, I might pre-color a piece of fabric I might dye it a base color say yellow or blue and then dye on top of that but I'll put patterning with wax resist in between those two dyes and it's all done in uh, vat dyes so I I, it's all long soaks in dye baths. Um, so number one, it, it absorbs the colors uh, just incredibly well. I mean, and it just, it reflects it back. Since it has this really high thread count, it reflects it back um, in a way that it's got an intensity and a sheen to it that I really like. And then the main thing is, so the way I get the wax out uh, is I boil it out. I have these big, like, stock pots, and I put them on the stove with some water, and I literally boil that fabric up to the surface and then kind of process it in tepid water a little bit, and it's done. Um, if you – I have I, – I would love, love, love to do this very same process on commercial fabric, but every time I've ever tried to use commercial fabric, I can't get the wax out. Same thing with muslin can't get the wax out. Um, and um, there's just nothing. I mean, I, that's not, I, I don't, I want it to go back to being fabric. And in order to go back to go, being fabric, it has to have the wax removed. So um, that's why I use the Pima text. Okay. And, um, and is there a place where people can, can buy some of that if they want to kind of give this a try at home? Where would you recommend that they, they source some Pima text? Oh, no. I would buy it from Dharma. You can buy it by the yard from Dharma. They'll even send you little fabric sample squares. You know, I don't know. They're like three by three or whatever. Um, and um, I mean, I I feel like if you if you get the buy the bold price, if you're interested in doing lots and lots, it's actually relatively reasonable. I mean, I think you can source it even cheaper than that if you really, say, want to go into business or whatever. But um but, uh, yeah, I think Dharma's actually got a pretty reasonable price, and they'll sell it to you by the yard. And if you get to 10 yards, they give you a discount. So Dharma Trading, I think, is a great source for that. Okay. And do you buy your dyes there as well? Yes, I do buy my dyes from Dharma Trading. Okay. And is there a particular – I mean, I haven't looked to see, like, what their range of dyes are, but is there a particular brand that you recommend or, you know, for people who just sort of want to give this a try at home, get the right supplies? Right. Well, so first off, Dharma has uh, little kits, you know, and they're not, they're not like lame kits where, you know, you, that they will, they will sell you, say, a kit of primary colors and they come in these tiny little containers and they're enough to dye, you know, X number of yards, not, not a whole lot but some um so that's a, a good place to start they're always i use the procyon mx dyes and it's not so much that it's a brand because there is no brand it's a type of dye and these are cold water dyes so when i mix them up i can mix them up in cold water i, I prefer to actually mix them up in hot water because they dissolve better but i will mix them up in a separate container the reason i have to use cold water is i i've put wax on this fabric wax that i melted if i put that waxed fabric into hot water well, then I've defeated the purpose of waxing it because now the wax is going to start melting in my dye bath. Um, so, but I can, in a separate, say, one cup container, mix my dyes, have them dissolve really nicely, and then I've only added a little bit of warmth to my general dye bath. Mm-hmm. I haven't really affected the temperature. So, but they will sell you little kits of those, you know, say primary colors, or, you know, um, they'll break them up into the newest spring colors or whatever, and um, you can try them out and see if you like them. They're incredibly easy to use. I mean, um, we're talking about a recipe that requires, you know, basically the dyes, salt, soda ash, which I don't buy my soda ash from uh, from uh, Dharma. I love the place, but you know what? Everybody's got a pool supplies store next to near their place, hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, and um, 
God forbid you should live too far from a pool supply store. I know. Well, here in Boston, it's a little less uh, frequent than maybe in Austin, but you know. Right. Well, so, you know, I have one, I can have one almost within walking distance and I've been going there for years and they don't have any any idea what I'm doing with all the soda ash, but they think that I have a really well-maintained pool. Um, And and I want to keep that impression up. so yeah, um, so it's basically salt and water, soda ash, and the dye. You may or may not need a water softener depending on the hardness of the water in your area, but that's it's it's a super simple recipe. Right, and you work, I mean, we'll talk a little bit later about your studio, but for many years you've had sort of a two studios, you have like a sewing studio in a bedroom or a room in your house, and then you dye, do all this dye work in your garage. So this is something that you can do at home, it's fairly simple, certainly simpler than printmaking, which was what you studied in college. Right. And I did lithographs. For, and for those folks who know what that means, I mean, I worked on these huge stones that they would quarry in Bavaria, and you had to have a big sink to remove the previous image. And we even had to have, like, we had, it was called Big Joe. It was like a, a forklift kind of thingy that you could move around yourself. It was almost like on a, you could push it around um, because these stones were too heavy to just carry in your hands. So you needed, you know, like a little bed that you would slide the stone onto and then roll it over to the table or wherever you were working and then slide the stone back onto the, onto your work surface. So yeah, um, it was, it was not something that I could, you know, do at home. But yes, I, I have been doing, in fact, I just moved to my new space, which, you know, kind of partly my space, but also this maker space, uh, this past week. And, um, you know, I, I have been using my garage for all this stuff for years, for, you know, 20 years plus. Right. So I just like, I love that because I think that it's a way for people who may be home with children, um, or, you know, may just not have access to an outside studio or a college or something like that, that, you know, you can really do a lot with pretty simple materials at home, cold water, you know, you don't need um, something super special uh, to to be able to make uh, beautiful uh, patterned and dyed fabrics. So, and I, and I talked about, I, th- I certainly talked about it in my craftsy class, but I talked about it in my first book, Color Your Cloth. Um, and at that point, I was, my joke was that I was working in uh, my house of the time had a three car garage. And so I could actually even, you know, park my car, you know, not too far from where I was dyeing fabric. And that was ever so convenient because I would lay out, you know, fabric on my car. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and, um, but yeah, I've, uh, and before that I didn't even have a garage. I just had like a covered porch, which I know wouldn't work places that it's, that are colder, but in Austin, I could pretty much work any day of the year, you know, outside essentially on my covered porch. So. Right. Okay. Um, I want to talk about batik because, um, you know, we all hear this word batiks a lot when we are, you know, in the quilting industry, um, people, talk a lot about making things out of batiks. And I know that you've said before that the batiks that we refer to that are in our local quilt shop, in your view, are sort of not actually batiks. That's in some way like a misnomer. Um, So I just wanted to see if you wanted to clarify that. Yeah, I, I, you know, um, I, yes, I I do want to clarify that. I don't, don't think of those. First of all, to me, a batik is something that has wax resistant and sometimes, or has been patterned with wax resistant. And sometimes these, these uh, fabrics will have a little bit of resist of some sort in them, but um, but they don't, you know, they don't, I mean, if you think about traditional batiks, and not that I make fabric that looks like traditional batiks, but if you think about those, those fabrics also don't look like traditional batiks, which often are very represent, representative in their nature. You know, the, the, it's very figurative. Um, it's definitely identifiable as an image. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I don't, I mean, I know that some people really love that kind of modely quality uh, that a lot of these batiks um, have. Um, I don't know that a lot of modern quilters really care for them. Um, in fact, if I had to, you know, put, if I had to just guess, I would say no. Um, but um, I, I don't think that that modely quality is is a function of like if I took a piece of waxed fabric and and wadded it up to get that modeled stuff, I'd be breaking my wax too, you know, and I would get a lot more kind of um, wax infiltration or dye infiltration to places I didn't want it. Um, then uh, there'd be less reason to put that patterning down. Why would I go to all the trouble putting that patterning down and then scrunch up my fabric so that all of a sudden I'd have, you know, 
um, all these hairline bits of dye going everywhere. Yeah, um, your so- your fabric to me is very graphic. Um, oh, it's very crisp I, and graphic in the way that um, sort of modern design is. Yeah, no, that's what I want. But and it's very simple to achieve. When I put my fabric into dye baths, I don't, I don't um, scrunch it up. I put it as flat as possible um, into that dye bath to preserve the pattern that I've put on with wax. Right. So, I mean, um, though I, you know, I'm happy for folks to buy any kind of fabric that they like. I don't think I, I feel like it's a it's a disservice. I, I often I feel like maybe it's my it's my job in life to change people's opinions of what they think. I I, I wish they wouldn't call those batiks. I I wish they would call them moder- modeled solids or something else because they're not batiks. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that because I think it's sure. an important thing. Um, so in addition to dyeing and patterning your own fabrics, and we talked about your your sort of frustration with some of the commercial fabrics as far as getting the wax out, but you do other things with commercial fabrics that are really cool. So um, you over dye and then you also discharge them. And I wanted to see if you wanted to talk about those two processes and, and how they work because that's another neat thing for people to experiment with. Yeah. Uh, and um, so actually I wrote an article for Quilting Arts. I think it was like back in 2009, maybe 2009, 2010. So that issue. And it was about this shibori process that I use. It is not, it's a, it's a very old process. That it's called Itajime and it's a clamp shape resist. I also did a little DVD workshop kind of video for Interweave Press um, a few years ago. And um, it basically, the traditional form is, you know, you take some fabric and you fold it and then you take two two pieces of wood that are the same shape. Maybe they're two triangles of wood or two squares of wood. And then you bind those together with twine and wherever you have that compression of the wood touching the fabric, you don't you get a resist. And so when you dip that into fabric into dye, you, you don't have dye going in those places and you'll have this impression of squares or triangles or whatever. I do essentially the same thing, except I do it with pieces of plexiglass and with the C-clamps that you buy at the hardware store. Um, and so, A, I get, um, I have a lot more choices in my shapes. I, you know, if I can, I used to have um, this uh, plastics fabricator make my shapes. You know, I'd go in there and they have scraps from whatever they're doing, and then I would ask them to make shapes. There's also... Um, Rossi Hutchinson, who's uh, big in the modern quilt movement, mm-hmm. she um, has an online Etsy store where she has some shapes too, and she's you know done a, she has uh, you know a connection to someone who has it's basically owning a skill saw with a plexiglass blade. But uh-huh. anyway, yeah, and so um, you know that's a, a great way to get some some shapes as well. Um, you could even buy if you really wanted to just start like today, I would go to the fabric store and buy some some templates, buy two sets of templates, two triangles or, or whatever, as long as there's the same shape, you know, about a quarter of an inch thick in terms of the template, even an eighth of an inch will work for you for a while till it breaks and some C clamps and you're set, you're ready to start, um, and, and die. Um, and what I do is I, the, the thing that I do is rather than do it onto, uh, onto undyed or just, you know, single dyed fabric. I do it on commercial fabric. And that's where I love to use commercial fabric. Um, So I did a whole series of quilts. I called them the twinkle quilts. And they're just four by four inch squares, but each one has got either a dyed or discharged, meaning bleached out circle in the center. And I've made these quilts as as little just kind of wall pieces. I've made them as king size quilts for customers. Um, And... um, and the same thing with uh, squares. I'll do um, nesting squares. Obviously, that requires multiple times in the dye bath, but the principle is that it all looks like it's pieced, but it's not, or it looks like it's uh, it's applique, but it's not, and it's all done on this commercial fabric. So you really have this kind of um, mosaic of patterning that happens. The cool thing about using commercial fabric is if you take color out, oftentimes you can still see the patterning that you took out. It's like you've got this shadow. Or if you add color, especially a pale color, you can still see, again, the patterning that was underneath. And so it really, it gives you so much, it it gives you a certain richness that you couldn't get just by using um, kind of just blank fabric. Yeah. And you look at it and you're like, wow. First of all, it totally looks like applique, um, especially the circles. You would definitely think they were applique until you got up close and could see that there wasn't a seam there. 
um, first of all. And also, like, it, you just look at it and it's like marvel about, like, how, how does, you know, it's almost like it, like it faded out out here and then inside it's rich. Like, how did this happen? So it's, it's really, um, I don't know, it's just a visual feast. Like, it's a wonderful thing to look at. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I feel like it goes back to when I used to make prints. When I used to make lithographs, I, um, we were taught this technique that I think that they taught us just because, you know, they felt like, oh, you should know all the techniques um, and, you know, you want to have a full full bag of, of equipment or techniques to work with. But um, I ended up using that it was called a reversal. And basically, so you have this stone, and on this stone, the whole principle behind lithography is that you draw in this kind of oil-filled crayon or paint or whatever, and then the way you process it, the stone has like two different sections. Some sections that are kind of, uh, they accept oil, and some sections that reject oil, you know? And that's how you keep the stone from, you know, having white space. That's how you keep the white spaces and the drawn spaces. And, um, well, there was this technique where you could basically, you know, process the stone and you would reverse all that. You know, you would reverse all the places that had been, you know, uh, places that were drawn became blank and all the places that were blank became drawn places. And then they also talked to us about how you could, like, use contact paper to shield, to kind of use as a resist, essentially. So some places would reverse and some places wouldn't. wouldn't. And then I, I did that a lot and I realized oh my goodness, when you reverse a stone and then you reverse it again, well, the thing about the stone is it's, it's actually this almost living thing. When you want to use, when you want to create a new image on a stone, you take it to a sink and you basically use grit to take off the top layer so that you've got a fresh stone and you can put your drawing on there. But the information from the previous drawings is like inside the stone. And so what I found when I did these reversals is that all this stuff all this information from other people's drawings that I had nothing to do with um, came up, and I I could bring those up. I could intentionally bring them up with some like an oil crayon, and and they would become this part of my image, and I had had nothing to do with it. And I feel like this is the same thing. When I use commercial fabric, I get you know all the stuff that was somebody else's creation. But now I can manipulate it and make it my own, you know, and it, it adds a richness to the, the, you know, the little four inch square that wouldn't be there if I just did them straight on as, you know, standard Itajime Shibori. Wow, that is an amazing uh, analogy. Uh, so interesting. And um, I also really enjoy the idea of looking at commercial fabric as somebody else's artwork that you're then manipulating because really that is what it is. That's what you're purchasing when you purchase a yard of prints, you know, from somebody from a company or whatever. Somebody designed that print and you're taking their image and then you're using that in your own uh, creation, whether you're going to dye it or just sew it either way. Um, but that is the way to think about it. I want to take a moment right now to talk about our sponsor, Okun Arts, a fabric shop based in Seattle that specializes in vintage Japanese yukata cottons. The owner of Okun Arts, Pat Patricia Belia, says she likely has the largest inventory of yukata cottons outside of Japan with over 600 bolts. Um, I wasn't sure what Yukata cottons were, frankly, when Patricia got in touch with me and she sent me some to play with. So here's what they are. They are used for making unlined casual kimonos in Japan. So one bolt of Yukata cotton makes one Yukata, which is, so it's kind of like a little kit. And they're a narrow width fabric. They're about 14 inches wide and they're designed to make a classic kimono with wing sleeves and a shawl collar. Um, the hand-dyed yukata cottons are made in a multi-step process with a paper stencil and luscious dyes in small workshops. And each year there are less and less of these artisan workshops that are still making hand-dyed fabrics this way. And the cottons are usually just printed today. So these are really rare and they're so beautiful. Um, so Patricia sources her cottons from over 30 vendors in Japan, basically buying dead stock from warehouses and antique shops and flea markets. 
And some of her fabrics are really quite old. They're all between 20 and 60 years old. So they're all vintage. It's really kind of amazing. Um, the fabrics are then sent to Tokyo for consolidation and then airshipped to her in Seattle. And one package usually holds about 25 bolts and each one is different. So it's really an exciting day for her when um, the shipment arrives and she unpacks them. And Patricia tells me that Yukata cottons are perfect for sewists who uh, just love fabric, love the richness of hand-dyed colors, and they're great for modern quilters who are interested in really bold patterns. So check them out at okanarts.com. That's O-K-A-N-Arts, A-R-T-S.com. And now back to my chat with Malka. Um, so you're in the process of moving your studio. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what are you most excited about, about moving out of your house? Sort of how did you know that it was really time? I mean, was there like a, a particular uh, instance when you're like, you know what, if I could just move, I would be able to have, you know, more of something or more space, more, more work, more production, more people working with me or what? So a lot of it is that, that um, I can go into bigger production. And I, I did recently hire an assistant. It wasn't entirely motivated by this. I, I mean, I'm happy to say that I've recovered from it, but I broke my ankle um, nine weeks ago and I was on crutches and I literally could do no work. You know, I could not make a dye bath. I mean, I couldn't even carry a coffee cup from one room to the other. So I wasn't making any dye baths. So I hired an assistant to basically do all that stuff for me. And um, I'm not letting her go um, because it's great. It's, it's all of a sudden I'm like two people. I can do twice as much work. Um, and, um, and who so was I, she? How did you find her? Was she a student at the college or was she somebody that was also already a dyer? Was there a lot of training? Because it's pretty specialized what you do. Um, so I actually found her. So there's a, I have a friend here who owns a store, The Cloth Pocket, and I'm happy to give a plug to The Cloth Pocket. Uh, my friend Nicole uh, set me up on this Facebook group called Chatty, C-H-A-T-T-I. It's, you know, invite only, but it's basically, I mean, anybody who wants to be on it can be asked to be invited. It's for folks in the, in the fiber textile industry. I don't know if it's only in Central Texas. It must be because most of the people seem to be talking about things, you know, that are happening in my area. And I posted it on Chatty and said, I'm looking for a studio assistant. And, you know, I actually got quite a few responses from that. And then this gal, um, you know, we had had some kind of common people that we knew at other kind of fabric stores. And, um, you know, she's, she's, a, she's a quilter um, and she has a lot of actual like retail experience. But mostly I felt like I could teach anybody who was enthusiastic what they needed to know. And she's certainly proven to be all that. She's proven to be very enthusiastic. And, um, you know, when I sometimes I have her like sewing stuff and she's just like, I just never thought that I would get to a point in my life where I was sewing as part of my job. And she's so happy about it. So, you know, who doesn't love working with somebody like that? So how many hours do you have her on now? Um, so I have her say two or three hours a day and the rest of the day I work on my own. Um, and that's only because I've just started to expand my business and I, I, it's just my nature not to, um, I'd rather work too many hours myself. I, you know, I'm, I'm a little more, I wish I was more, well, I don't actually in any way wish I was more Donald Trump like, but <laughs> if, I, if I was more risky or more risk taking financially, you know, I, I really do work within the parameters of the budget that I've got. And, um, it's, it's been, you know, <laughs> it's been difficult kind of, you know, emotionally for me to even invest in a studio space. So I'm not ready to invest in a full-time right. uh, assistant. Yeah. Okay. So she'll come with you. I mean, she's come now you've moved. So she's come with you to your outside studio space and, mm -hmm. um, and you're going to be able to do more both with the space and with her there. And then, um, you're splitting the space with another maker. And then you have this third space that's going to be sort of for, um, groups to come in that, and, and use as almost like a classroom space. Yeah, it's great. So um, it's um, it's a very it's an industrial space, and um, um, it, so yeah. Uh, and my my friend who I'm splitting with is like Mr. Super Handy. So he built us walls, and he put in lighting and plumbing, and um, 
And so we do have this, like, it, the whole space is 1,400 square feet, so we divided it up into two kind of separate spaces for ourselves um, and then the, the big maker space in the middle. And, yes, we will have, we have tables and we have uh, a sink and we'll have a washing machine in there because we're really anticipating that most of the workshops will be fiber or dye-oriented, though they don't have to be. Um, um, they could be basically anybody who let's say you have a project that you're working on and you just don't have the space in your own home to work on it, then you could rent our space. Or if you want to teach a workshop, but you don't have any place to teach that workshop, you're a painter or um, you're a weaver and um, you want workshop space, again, you can rent our space. Um, and so we provide, and, and we will even have an opportunity for folks who say want to dye some fabric and they, they don't want to invest in all the dyes. Well, you can rent the materials or essentially buy the materials from us and use all our our equipment and and dye fabric that way. And is so. he is your um, partner? Is he um, your business partner in this venture? Is he a uh, dyer as well, or does he do something different? No. Um, so this is my friend Jeff. Is uh, he's a jack of all trades. So he for many years was an engineering consultant, but he's incredibly handy. So much so that he built literally he himself built these two loft spaces behind uh his house or his and his wife is one of my closest friends um and uh they rent them out you know um but it's not like he went and found a contractor literally you know he built them and um so he for many years has been buying uh bikes uh from like craigslist and then fixing them up and um reselling them and he wants to start a program where he could even hire say a couple people and train them and give them jobs um, to do the very same thing. And um, so our space is a nonprofit. We're, we're not looking to, you know, um, you know, set the world on fire financially with this space. But, um, but so that's what his space is about. He, he has, you know, he basically fixes these bikes and, um, and then resells them. Um, but he can, you know, I, 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 I don't know that there's a thing that needed to be done that Jeff couldn't do. So. <laughs> this sounds like a really exciting new venture. So congratulations on, on the move. Um, and the workshop space sounds fan, like a fantastic resource and something that we could definitely use here in Boston as well. So um, that's super cool. And um, I want to talk a little bit about your shop. Um, so you have a shop called A Stitch and Die, which is also the name of your blog. And um, that's where you sell. You sell yardage, um, and people can buy, you know, your hand-dyed fabric, your patterned fabric. Um, you also sell finished goods that you make, like pillows and quilts, and you have some patterns. And um, your shop is on Etsy, and I just wanted to ask, you know, why, why Etsy? And um, you certainly have, I think, for sure, a strong enough following um, to have your own spot, uh, your own online shop. Is that something you considered or – Sort of what is the thinking behind e-commerce? Um, well, I think that, you know, I, I think that e-commerce is just so, if nothing else, so darn convenient, you know. So it doesn't really hurt you to do it. Even if you're um, – and I, I, I don't see myself ever wholesaling the fabric itself because it's just so labor-intensive that I, I don't think that I could – except – I do do QuiltCon. I did QuiltCon uh, last time when it was here, and I'm going to be doing it in Pasadena. And when I can, you know, when I've got, you know, customers that are right there in my space, uh, the the fabric sells really, really well. Um, but then I'm selling. I'm I'm not having to wholesale it. I, I in many ways I almost wholesale it to my customers. It's just so expensive to make that I can't see wholesaling it to um, a store and then them marking it up. You know for twice that amount. Right. Um, so you feel like so, in order for this to be financially feasible, you need to get the, you know, 97% or whatever of the, right. um, of the cost, you know, of the, of the price, the, the, the retail price, you can't, um, get 50% of it because it just isn't right. going to be worth it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so, um, so I set up the, then I set it up years ago, 2007, 2008. And at the time, I don't know that there were a lot of choices. I mean, I could be mistaken, but my impression was there weren't a lot of choices. Etsy was a lot smaller. Um, and um, 
So, and it was great for me. I mean, it was, it was terrific. I feel like now, and I actually am working on my current space is a WordPress space. Um, and I had a great graphic designer design it for me. It's not as user friendly. I'm not, you know, a graphic designer myself. It's not as user friendly as I'd like it to be. So I'm actually migrating my space somewhere else where I can do e-commerce directly on my space and have a little more, uh, flexibility in terms of changing things. Um, and I will be opening up a, you know, a, a true kind of everything that you could find in my Etsy store kind of space in this new space. And um, I, I don't just don't know um, that Etsy, Etsy has gotten really, really big and really, really big. And things have, have definitely changed on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't you know. you feel like when you open your own online shop, you might close the Etsy shop or keep both? I'm not sure there's yet. No, there's no incentive for me to close it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like it's, you know, super expensive for me to maintain. Um, but I do see myself potentially uh, putting less effort into it, you uh-huh. know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The way that I do it is I, um, like you, I've had that my Etsy shop for a long time. I also have e-commerce on my own site. And what I do is I just promote the, the my own site. So if I send a newsletter and that sort of thing or link to, to a pattern or something that I'm selling, a supplies, an e-book, et cetera, I just um, promote my own site. Um, because I feel like Etsy promotes the Etsy shop. I don't need to do anything there. So, um, right. you know, that's Etsy's job. <laughs> and that's, so I just, I just ignore it and, um, and it just kind of functions on its own with no effort, um, yeah. to whatever degree it's going to function. And I just kind of let it be. Yeah. That's my attitude. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. Um, so, uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Moda. Um, uh-huh. Because I think it's something that people are curious about. And I just wondered, um, I, I mean, I wonder a bunch of things about it. But first, how did the relationship with Moda come about? Um, you know, was that something that you always dreamed of? Of, you know, you said you can't wholesale the fabric yourself. It's just too expensive. Um, so so this gives you a way to, to widely distribute it. I mean, it's in my local quilt shop over, you know, right down the road from me. So um, was that like the impetus for Moda or did it come about in a different way? It came about in a very, very almost organic way. I had just published, um, um, not Color Your Cloth, uh, Fresh Quilting with Interweave Press. And um, just, you know, maybe a few months later, Cheryl Freyberg, who's a design director at Moda, called me on the phone um, and asked me, you know, if I would be interested in designing fabric. Um, She'd seen my book and she really loved the patterns and she noticed that that I did include, I tried to limit it, but I did include some of my hand dyes in the designs for the book. And would I be interested in designing fabric? And and they're in Dallas, which is like three and a half hours from here. Um, I felt a little guilty taking a flight there because, you know, it's like a 40 minute flight, but I did it. Um, And, uh, um, and so I went to meet with them and I went, brought, you know, stuff that I had um, designed for my own store. So just the kind of fabrics that I was making for my own store and spent the day there, you know, kind of putting it together in a collection, you know, um, part of putting together a collection is uh, developing a palette and uh, requesting strike offs or basically sample pieces uh, in color combinations that are within your palette, but you might not have already created. Um, and um, then, you know, uh, a few months later, the strike-offs came, and I was just beyond thrilled. I, I remember turning to my youngest daughter and saying, I just may never dye fabric again, you know. That, they really wanted to recreate that hand-dyed look, you know. They really, but not, not in the, they do have batiks or what they call batiks, you know, but that not in that way. They really wanted it. They really wanted to cre- recreate was what I was creating, but just in a commercial process. Um, and I was very, very happy with the strike-offs. And then you have to cull it down. You know, you, you ask for I don't even know how many pieces of fabric, and then you have to cull it down to, say, 40, something that's reasonable to create as a collection. And um, I'll tell you what, I will never forget the day that I, I get sample yardage, say, five yards of every uh, every print and, and solid. I'll never forget the day those boxes came to my house and I opened them up and I laid them out on my dining room table. And first of all, the, of course, the, the biggest thing is to see your name on the selvage of fabric, you know, um, which is an even greater thrill than seeing your name on the you know spine of a book. I don't know why, but it was just like... Uh, it was it was beyond you know thrilling and um, and then to get to work with that fabric and then I even I even took my own commercial fabric and over dyed it and <laughs> tried to 
That's amazing. Um, Okay, so when you when you prepare a collection for Moda, and how long have you been uh, working with them? That was several years back. Yeah, that was. I want to say it's about been about four years. Okay. Um, and how many collections a year, sort of, on average? I usually, usually only do one collection a year. I'd like to do more, but, you know, I design quilts, and I have my own hand-dyed. I just don't know that uh, right. I could do more. Yeah. Okay, so, so you do a collection for Moda. Um, what do you give them? I mean, uh, you don't strike me as somebody who's sitting, as you said, you're not a graphic designer, so you, you don't strike me as somebody who's sitting there on Illustrator manipulating the repeat. Um, am I right? Like, you, you create the... I'm imagining that you create like actual fabric and then you give them the fabric and they take care of it. Am I wrong on that? Exactly what I do. I send them pieces. They're a little smaller than say fat quarters of, um, of, yeah, that's what I do. I make little sample pieces of fabric. And I think actually that's the best way to get, see, the thing is I'm, I'm still doing it on this Pima cotton, but they're going to print it on whatever substrate, you know, I don't know exactly what, it's a cotton, but you know, whatever substrate they use. So I think it's really important that they know exactly what it's supposed to look like so that they can create, recreate it exactly that way. So yes. And, and actually that's one of the things I've always loved about working for Moda. Nobody's ever turned to me and said, this would be so great if only you'd send us illustrator files instead, you know? Mm-hmm. They're willing to work with you with the way that you make things, which is potentially different from the way any other designer in their portfolio makes things. I mean, you have right. your own process, and um, and your process includes, um, uh, you know, imperfection, right? Like when you're laying wax on fabric and then dyeing it, it's not going to be, you know, a perfect circle, a perfect yeah. oval. Like, you know, part of part of what people love about it is this organic feeling like the the wax was just a little bit whiter right there you know so like it doesn't look computer generated yeah and actually that's yes i think that that is one of the beauties of it is that when you buy from me whether it's my hand dyed fabric or the stuff that i designed for moda you're getting you're getting something truly hand-drawn. If you buy from me directly, if you buy my, my fabrics, you are getting something that I either stamped on there or drew on there. Um, and um, that's a pretty rare thing these days, you know, um, especially as, a, as an item that you're supposed to reuse and make your own, whether you put it into a quilt or clothing or whatever. Um, I think that that, and I don't know, when I was in college, I had, you know, you know, I was an idealistic. I hope I'm still somewhat idealistic, but I was really, really idealistic. And being in the printmaking department here too, I, you know, there was um, there's a lot of great artists that we can name: um, Jasper Johns or Robert Rauschenberg or or any of these like big artists who've made prints. And people talk about how they're just amazing printmakers. But the truth of it is, they actually don't know how to make any print. They don't know the techniques of, of printmaking. They go to a master printer. And they say, hey, I want to make, I have this painting, and I want to see it as a print. And they'll work, it's, it's a cooperative process, they'll work with this master printer. But in terms of pulling the print, they don't know anything about pulling prints. They don't pull any prints. So when I was in college, you know, I thought it was uh, very clever. And I, you know, I was, so I decided to start this whole campaign about how, um, uh, how, uh, printmaking it needed to show the hand of the printmaker mm. and you know i made these like xerox posters that i put up all over the art building <laughs> and nobody knew who it was and then um then i was invited because i had some other pieces in the student show um to talk about my pieces and um i had put up one of the posters in the student show kind of like in the middle of the night and so as i'm giving my little talk about my pieces i walk over you know i, I direct the crowd over to my little poster and i make this big announcement that it's been me all along. <laughs> posters about the hand of the artist and how I feel like it's so important and and really actually what I'm realizing now is I haven't changed a bit (laughs) (laughs) kind of of disappointing Um, so yeah so I I still believe in the hand of the artist I still I I love that that's one of the things I love actually about making a quilt or seeing other people's quilts or their embroideries or fiber arts in general is that you you can't hide that hand you see it you know yeah no I agree with you so um I want to talk a little bit about your background um and uh you were born in Israel Mm -hmm. um and spent time in Tel Aviv as a child and when did your family move to the United States we, we, it was back and forth for a while, but we moved permanently when I was nine. Okay. And what made them decide to move? 
oh, my dad, you know, I mean, he was a doctor, uh, and surprise, surprise, there are a lot of Jewish doctors in Israel, and um, Jewish doctors and Jewish lawyers. Um, so, um, so you know, I mean, he just had more, he had more uh, career opportunities. Okay. And my mother was also, she was a, a research scientist. She worked for many years at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston uh, in the cancer research labs, and I think she felt like she, too, had more opportunities in, in uh, the United States. So are you still bilingual? Yes, I speak to my parents, especially now that they're older and their, you know, their cognitive skills have gone down a bit. Um, yeah, I speak to my parents exclusively in Hebrew. And when was the last time you were you went back to Israel? And what, what what did you think about it when you were there? Like, what struck you about it? Um, it's been a few years. I was there in 2009. My eldest daughter was swimming for the U.S. team at the Maccabia, which is kind of like a, a teens, um, or actually it's not just teens, but it's a it's a, um, an athletic competition. And um, so, oh, I, you know, I always feel very connected I, to, to Israel. And, I, you know, I have family there. And um, so to tell you the truth, I always feel a little kind of conflicted about, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I love Austin, but um, I always, you know, I'm always very happy to come and somewhat sad to leave. Um, but I, I, I know that, you know, this is, I'm, I'm where I belong. And so. um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of Judaica patterns. I've written about this on my blog. I'm also Jewish. And, um, and I feel like when I look around, um, and I want to make things for my family to use for the Jewish holidays, um, challah cover, uh, you know, something for the sukkah, et cetera. There, there's just so few modern uh, Jewish fabrics and patterns and uh, that are out there. It's something that I, I'd like to work on at some point in my career, um, maybe being able to bring some of those out into the marketplace. But um, I wondered if you've noticed that and, and have thought about that in any way. I definitely have made Judaica for my own family. I do it for customers as well. Just recently, I made a challah cover for a family where they specifically asked me to like use their family name on the front of the challah cover using my hand-dyed fabrics. Um, and um, I've even like you know I've been very active in kind of improvisational quilt making, and I've improved. Hebrew letters again for challah covers, or I made a, a baby quilt once for a customer, uh, and then again it was all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but kind of improv pieced and using all hand dyed fabrics. So yes, I w- would very much like to, um, and I I even use um, so <laughs> this is like a bit of trivia that will only appeal to like two percent of the population. But um, so I belong to a synagogue in my town, and I more than belong to a synagogue. I am the 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 Torah and Haftorah trope teacher at my synagogue school, uh, which means I teach sixth graders and seventh graders how to read from the Torah and how to read like the other books of the of the kind of Jewish liturgy uh, for their bar about mitzvahs and otherwise. And so I, you know, I use and I, I made and used my own talit that I have made using my shibori techniques and stuff. So I, I, I'm very into, I would a updating what looks what Judaica looks like these days, yes. and B, yeah, um, and B just yeah, making it more personal for people, making it part of today's aesthetic as, as opposed to the aesthetic that you know. I'm, I mean, I love my grandparents, but I don't know that I want my talit or my challah cover or uh, what I use uh, for Passover uh, to be like that anymore. Exactly. Okay, cool. We got to get together on this because this is really important to me. So (laughs) yeah, this is something that I think needs to happen um, sometime fairly soon. But um, all right. So I, for last question, before we get to your uh, recommendations, um, I hear you wake up at 4.30 in the morning. Is that true? Oh, not quite that early. (laughs) So I'm I'm very, one of the things that was really hard for me when I broke my ankle, and I broke my ankle doing something athletic. Um, I had just gone to climb Pikes Peak, and I was on my way down Pikes Peak, almost done, you know. And I would love to say I was doing something, you know, incredibly exciting when I broke my ankle, but I was actually just walking down the trail, and, you know, maybe I wasn't concentrating. I was thinking maybe more about how I was going to, you know, use the hot tub at the hotel that night or something like that and slipped and, uh, fell on the gravel and broke my ankle. Um, but so I'm very athletic. So, you know, a lot of times, especially in Austin where, you know, even today, I think it's going to get to be, I don't know, 90 plus degrees. You got to wake up early to go running if you want to run. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a runner and I'm a swimmer. And so, 
yeah, you, you have to wake up early if you're going to, if you're going to do those things. Okay. So, so do you swim, uh, uh like daily or, um, I'm like, what, I what is your morning routine for exercise look like? Oh, it, it changes. Cause I, I like to do yoga too. So, um, but, um, when I'm running, I'll probably run four or five days a week and then I'll swim a couple days. I, I like work out. I mean, pretty much every day, sometimes more than once. Um, and I call it my homicide prevention technique so that I don't kill anybody else. <laughs> so, um, and you know, I have different runs. I have groups. I'm in a running group and then I used to be on a master's swim team. So it's just a team for folks who are 18 and up. Um, and, um, and I used to swim with them. Um, and uh, then I, I mean, everything that I do kind of athletic wise or physical wise, I do with some other people. So I belong to a yoga studio or I still belong to the same studio and, uh, and I'll go, you know, to class and stuff. I was so happy this morning when I realized, especially since it's, you know, the day before Yom Kippur and I got to get a bunch of stuff ready. Um, I was like, how am I going to get to yoga today? Till I realized that you're on the West Coast and I, I'm on the East Coast and I'm Central Time. And so if you would be calling me an hour right. earlier <laughs> than I expected, and so I'd have no problem making it to noon yoga. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, no, I understand. I went on my run before I called you this morning. So, <laughs> yeah, it's important. And I think when you do um, a kind of work where you're focusing a lot and where you are quiet a lot and um, sometimes sedentary, um, it is really helpful in my mind to sort of get out and run around or, you know, exert yourself. When you come back, you have this like inner sense of calm. And for me, at least I'm able to then sit down for a long period and work on something. Oh, I totally agree. When I was laid up because of my injury, and I did try to do, you know, some some stuff. And then once I was given permission to at least like swim a little bit, I went to do that. But I, I felt like I, I wasn't the same person. You know, I just I, I didn't know what to do with all that extra, not just energy, but, you know, where I'd been putting all that energy. And then I, I felt like I couldn't focus. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very helpful for focus. Um, I think for a long time, I'm not a naturally, naturally athletic person. And I think for a long time, I thought that it was like a waste of time because I, I also like you have three daughters and I don't have a lot of time. And so I was like, oh, I can't use my time to, you know, work out for an hour. That's like half my time, my free time. But now I really, it's, I've been running for three years and I see now that that was <laughs> exactly the wrong way to think. So, um, yeah, it, it was like a lifesaver really. So, um, all right, let's talk about your, uh, your recommendations. Um, the first one that I wanted to talk about is, um, the Unorthodox podcast, which I just recently discovered and started listening to and love as well. So do you want to tell us what is um, what is that podcast? So um, the the subtitle of it is it's News for Jews. But I, I, I think that anybody could listen to it and, and think that it's hysterical. So it's put out by the editors of Tablet Magazine. And um, it's there are three hosts. And um, so it talks about, I guess, news of the week that that affects the Jewish community, but it's done in such a wonderfully kind of irreverent uh, and um, uh, it's just very appealing, very, um, very open and uh, very everybody friendly that I really think that, and this is despite the fact that oftentimes they say things and I'm like, if you're not Jewish, how are you supposed to know that reference? And even if you are Jewish, chances are you don't know that reference. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but I, I just, and they're, they, they are irreverent, the three of them, and they are all unorthodox. Um, and what's funny is that a couple of weeks ago they had a rabbi on there who is orthodox, and he's you know he's doing outreach to uh, Jews who are who are not orthodox, trying to explain orthodoxy to them so that they, it would be more appealing to them. And he he was campaigning for them to change the name of the podcast to Orthodox. Um, but um, it's just it's just fun. And um, but then they they also they have author interviews on there. They had a discussion, especially in light of the the holidays, uh, Yom Kippur being the Day of Atonement, a kind of a day that you in, engage in self reflection and ask yourself, you know, what kind of person am I, and and how can I be better? And they talked about um, being sorry for things and what that really really means. And I thought it was actually quite meaningful. Yeah, that, that they had um, Marjorie Engel was the guest on that episode, and I love her, and I, I love her on Twitter, and um, she used to write for Sassy, and she's just like a great person, and she has a blog about um, about sorry, like how to write 
write a sorry letter mm-hmm. um, where she collects different people's apology letters and analyzes them, and um, which is fascinating, uh, the art of writing an apology. So that wasn't a particularly good episode. Um, yeah. yeah. So Unorthodox Podcast, that's a good one. Um, all right. And you wanted to recommend a novel by Louisa Hall called Speak. Yeah. So I'm actually reading this for my book club. And I, 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 in all honesty, I would never probably have picked it up on my own. Uh, interestingly enough, Louisa Hall is uh, lives here in Austin. She's a, a lecturer or professor at the University of Texas. Um, but it's about um, kind of the overload of our information. So it's written as a, a series of kind of almost disjunctive voices, um, both set in the future and set way in the past, like in the you know 1600s. But it's all about um, you know what we have become via all our devices and all our artificial intelligence and our need for you know. Um, for that kind of stimulation and, and um, connection, because we still need lots of connection, but we're maybe getting it in some of the wrong ways or not getting it in ways that really fulfill people. I mean, they say that people have hundreds of friends on Facebook and yet they feel just desperately lonely, you know, and um, or that, you know, this you, you get emails, but you don't feel connected to other people. And um, so this book really kind of, deals with all these issues and and it's somewhat dystopian but sections of it are are not it's 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 just a very interesting book in terms of thinking about how we connect to other people and what our kind of hunger for new technology is really doing to us okay that's a good one i i'll have to check it out i've never heard of it before um but it sounds like a good one i don't read a ton of fiction um i've recently right now i'm reading uh the biography of elon musk which is really oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, he is such an interesting person. And um, I kind of love outer space and um, and I love like internet business and he um, and like electric cars. It's fascinating. So I really recommend it. It's by Ashley Vance and um, Elon Musk, man. He is the man. He is so cool. So I now I'm like dying for a Tesla, um, which I actually never really care about cars. But now I'm really I really want Tesla. Um, oh, so. <laughs> They're coming up with a uh, more kind of, you know, regular consumer model. So there you go. Yeah, no, that's what I'm waiting for. Uh, They're really cool. Um, All right. And you had one final recommendation, which is the Headspace app. Yeah, this is a great app. So, you know, like a lot of people, so not too long ago I read, um, and I'm a huge fan of hers, of Gretchen Rubin and her whole series of books, The Happiness Project and um, um, Better Than Before. And she talked about how she really wanted to get into meditation, but she didn't feel like she could. And actually, you know, in the course of uh, Better Than Before really kind of came to to grips with the fact that perhaps meditation was not her thing. But um, I, too, have really wanted to, I feel like, for Pete's sakes, I go to yoga. Shouldn't I be into meditation? And I feel guilty sometimes because, you know, you go to yoga. And I go to a yoga studio where, you know, we do some pretty athletic poses, but it's not supposed to be about the pose. They tell us that all the time. It's not about the pose. It's about your breath and all this other stuff. But I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, for me, it's all about the pose. I come home and I text my daughter and I'm like, I managed to get into this pose, you know. And so, um, but I felt like I should be a little more in tune. And um, so in yoga, we, you know, at the very end, you go into Shavasana, the corpse pose, and you're supposed to kind of meditate, just kind of listen to your breath and kind of uh, um, delete or at least push away all those thoughts. Um, The thing I like about Headspace is I think guided meditation is really, really helpful in that particular aspect. You know, in yoga, we're just kind of left to our own devices to lay there and hopefully, you know, push away thoughts or focus on our breath. But in, in on this app, you put it on, they've got these great little graphics to explain to you kind of what the point of a particular kind of meditation is or what their focus is. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a subscriptions, but you can try it out for 10 days for free, you know, and, um, and not like free where you give them a credit card free where you're just trying it out. Um, and, um, and they, the, so the graphics are really kind of cute and inspiring. And then the, the person who does the guided meditation has got a very kind of soothing, very British voice, you know, <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, it just feels very, it helps you to stay in that space. And, and I've been, 
trying meditation for a, a while now. And one thing that they do that I've never heard anyone else do is there'll be a point in the guided meditation where they will tell you, now all those thoughts that you've been holding back, go ahead and let them come to center stage, you know? I've never had a guided meditation tell me that it's okay at this point to think all my thoughts and to let them just kind of run wild. And I, I find it more doable knowing that I don't have to, I, I'm not working it. There's going to be a point where I almost get to take a break, you know? Mm. And um, so, yeah, I just think it's a really good app and you can put it on your phone and you can do it anywhere with uh, headphones. And so, and it's short, like it's like, uh, yeah, they're, they're 10 minutes. The guided meditations are no more than 10 minutes. Right. Which I think is a nice bite-sized piece for people, but can still make a good difference in your day. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, Malka, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Mall Sheen Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, I enjoyed talking to you. This was great. Yeah, it was awesome. And where can people connect with you online if they want to kind of check out your work and see what you're up to? So I do have a website, stitchanddye.com, S-T-I-T-C-H-I-N-D-Y-E.com. I can't tell you how many times I've spelled that. And then um, <laughs> you can also find my work at stitchanddye.etsy.com. And then I'm on Instagram as stitchanddye. Um, and on Twitter as Stitch and Die. Super. Okay. So people should reach out and find you in all of those places or whatever place they prefer. Um, and you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. And I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. And be sure to check out today's sponsor, Oaken Arts. If you live in the Seattle area, you can visit Oaken Arts in person and see the beautiful vintage Japanese yukata cottons. And if you're not local, check them out online at okenarts.com. I think you'll love what you find. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>